16. We are pausing in our series on Genesis in order to consider together the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the Gospel of John. So this will take us leading up to Easter and then a little bit after Easter to cover these chapters. And we had some scripture journals. These are ESV scripture journals that were left over from youth camp. There's a stack of them out in the lobby on the counter. They are free for you to take if you would like. If you like that sort of thing, being able to, to mark up, being able to write notes. Um, when I do devotions in the morning, I use one of these scripture journals for whatever book I'm in. I love making lots and lots of notes. So these are free, and there are about 10 of them out there in the lobby. Well, perhaps you have heard of Merry Christmas Jay. Merry Christmas Jay. This is a, a man that many call Merry Christmas Jay, who became famous just this last Christmas when a terrible snowstorm hit Buffalo, New York. People were driving in their cars. They had heard that a storm was impending, but it still came so suddenly upon them that many of the cars got stuck on the road. And over a four-day span, people getting stuck, some freezing to death, some by carbon monoxide poisoning from being trapped in their cars, 47 people died on account of this blizzard. They either remained in their car and died, or they got out of their car and were seeking to get help, and they died. And one man, a 27-year-old mechanic named Jay Withy, was on his way to help a friend who was stuck in the snow when his vehicle got stuck as well. And this was Christmas Eve, so when we were at Orchard Kingdom doing our Christmas Eve service, or a little after, this was unfolding in Buffalo. As Christmas Eve, as night fell, uh, he realized that this was, it was in great danger. And so Jay got out of his car and he went door to door to the houses that were nearby. And he asked them, can I please stay to sleep on your floor and to be out of the storm tonight? And he went to 10 houses and he got 10 refusals. Even offered, he said, I have $500 cash, would you let me sleep? And he was turned away. So he slept in his truck with two other strangers who were also stranded. But the next morning, they realized that his truck was running dangerously low on fuel. And to run out of fuel was to run out of the ability to have heat and therefore to die. So they trekked through waist-deep snow to a school that was nearby. They broke the window, and they got into the school. They broke the lock on the nurse's station. They broke the lock on the cafeteria. They got blankets. They got food. And then Jay went back out into the blizzard, and he began knocking on the windows of the various stranded cars, and he brought a total of, with himself, 10 people. 10 people brought out of their dire situations and into the refuge of the school. Mr. J. Withy wrote a note that he left at the school. It says this, To whomever it may concern, I'm terribly sorry about breaking the school window and for breaking in the kitchen. 
got stuck at 8 p.m. Friday and slept in my truck with two strangers just trying not to die. There were seven elderly people also stuck and out of fuel. I had to do it to save everyone and to get them to shelter and food and a bathroom. Merry Christmas, Jay. And this note, and how he signed this note, is how he got the name Merry Christmas, Jay. When I first read that account, I was struck by his phrase that he uses. I had to do it to save everyone. Jay could have easily just looked out for himself. No one would have faulted him if he had not done it. But there was this compulsion he felt, a voluntary compulsion. I had to do it to save everyone. And what occurred with Merry Christmas Jay on Christmas Eve in Buffalo Church, we know that that is an echo of a greater salvation that Jesus did when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' entire life was leading up to this moment. Judas, who was one of his disciples, had led a group of guards to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Jesus, though, was not hiding among the trees. He stepped forward. He asked the question, who are you looking for? And then he offered himself. And why? Why does he do that? He does it to save sinners. This is how he saves them. This is how he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's as though Jesus said, In the Garden of Gethsemane, I had to do it to save everyone, compelled from within, compelled voluntarily. And so it's this passage and this event that we turn our attention to this morning. So if you have your Bible, open to John 18. Let's begin reading together. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the the brook Kidron, where there was a great garden, I'm sorry, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus, that he had spoken of. Those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captors and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege. Thank you for preserving this word, Lord, to both stir new faith and to strengthen existing faith. 
I pray this morning, Lord, that if anyone is here today who does not yet know Christ, does not yet believe and have life in his name, that you would draw them. That seeing such a willing Savior would compel them. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith today in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, that we would be moved, that we would be moved to worship, that we would be moved to song, that we would be moved to repentance, that we would be moved to holy lives because we see Jesus loving when he didn't have to love, doing something he didn't have to do. But we thank you, Lord, that he voluntarily felt compelled from within to save sinners like us. Lord, thank you. And we pray, Lord, as well, that you would minister among us. Lord, meet the various needs, both physical and spiritual, this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing that is unique to the Gospel of John is that over and over again, John is seeking to draw out and point our attention to Jesus' divinity. That's just a fancy word for his godness. He is fully God and he is fully man. This is how the book of John begins. It begins with there is this eternal word who both is God and with God in the beginning. And so his, his divinity is being portrayed in chapter after chapter and this remains true when we get to his suffering and his death and his resurrection. Jesus' suffering is not an unfortunate mishap on an otherwise remarkable life. He came to lay down his life for sin. As he had planned, he is God and equal with God. He had planned exactly when and how his death would happen. And so Jesus repeatedly had said in the Gospel of John, he would say, my hour is not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then in John 12, and then again in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. I've entitled our series from John 18 to 21, The Hour Has Come. This is the hour of glory, but it's also an hour of suffering. This is the hour where he accomplishes salvation, where he atones for sin, where he procures forgiveness for all who trust in him. He uses all of his power, all of his godness, all of his divinity to lay down his life as a sacrifice. And so in our passage, I I see a staggering claim, a sacrificial mission, and a sad denial. So those are going to be our three headings today. Let's begin with a staggering claim. We don't know exactly how many were present 
to arrest Jesus, but Matthew's gospel tells us it was a great crowd. Verse 3 refers to there being a band of soldiers. These would have been Roman soldiers based on the word that's used there. And then it also includes officers from the religious rulers. So you have a group of both Jews and Gentiles with lanterns and torches and weapons coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus and the disciples are outnumbered and outmatched. And this arresting squad is led by one of the twelve, Judas. He left the upper room in John 13, which was just hours before this moment. Jesus had washed his feet, and then he went out to betray him. And so to the human eye, John 18, Jesus looks helpless. He looks like a man who has been tricked and bested. But this dire situation that he finds himself in makes his staggering claim all the more powerful. It says in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? You know, I think of times in my life that if I had known what was going to happen to me, I would have chosen to do something very different. Like that knowledge, I would have used that knowledge to escape something difficult, painful, uh, that upends my, upends my life. But rather than Jesus using his knowledge to escape, he uses his knowledge to step forward. He predicted the betrayal of Judas. He knows what is about to happen through this suffering and death. In fact, this theme of knowing, it's very prominent in John's gospel. Jesus knows something and then he acts. So John 13, 1, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world. And then he speaks to his disciples for like five hours. John 13, 3, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God, so he washes the disciples' feet. John 19, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he knew, it says, that everything had been finished. So he drank and he gave up his spirit. So there's nothing surprising to a being who knows all things. And says, knowing all things, knowing all that would happen to him, what did he do? He came forward. And he took the initiative to ask, whom do you seek? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a willing sacrifice. He was volunteering. To use the words of Merry Christmas Jay, he had to do it to save everyone. Jesus' willingness to suffer and die shows how great is his love for sinners. How great is his love for you and me? Because this is not all that he knows. He knows we can't pay him back. He knows that we don't deserve it. He knows how far we are going to still fall short of his perfect glory in lives of obedience. 
I mean, I, I'm just, I'm convicted reading this of how many things I do begrudgingly, reluctantly for the good of others. Jesus displays how much he loves you. Knowing everything, he steps forward. And he asks, verse 5, well, he asks in verse 4, whom do you seek? And then verse 5, it says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, the Gospel of John is the only Gospel account that includes this occurrence. They're looking for Jesus. He says, I am he. And when he does so, they move backwards and actually fall down. There's this group. And this is a curious detail because, again, Jesus is outnumbered. He's outmatched. He steps forward. He gives them two little words in the Greek, and they step back and fall down. Why? Well, those two little words are a staggering claim. In the Greek, it's ego eimi, translated I am. And it's emphatic. Jesus is not merely answering their question. Jesus is answering their question by revealing and identifying himself as God. This is how how God revealed himself at the burning bush with Moses, Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if the people of Israel come and say to, uh, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is claiming to be the great I am, the Lord of history, the ever-existing one without beginning or end, the one who simply is. And it's a claim that Jesus makes many times throughout the Gospel of John. He made this claim when he was speaking to the woman at the well, John chapter 4. She says, oh, I know that the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. And he says, the one who is speaking to you, I am. He says it again to his disciples, John 6. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he comes to them walking on the water and he says, I am. Do not be afraid. All of the claims that are unique in the Gospel of John that don't show up in the other Gospels take this same I am form. I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the true vine, John 15, 1. Make no mistake, Jesus is making the staggering claim that he is the Lord of history. This is why they step backwards. This is why they fall down even though they have him outmatched and outnumbered because they're realizing we don't have him outmatched or outnumbered. He said in John 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And he made a Jewish crowd want to stone him in John 8, 58 by saying, before Abraham was, I am. Because they knew that was a claim of deity. That was blasphemy, this man claiming to be God. And so Jesus isn't entering this moment as a helpless victim. He's going to the cross as the Lord of history, as the one who has all authority, and he's using his authority to lay down his life. He said in John ten eighteen, no one... No one takes it from me, that is my life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is a staggering claim for Jesus to make, that he is both God, fully God, and fully man, that he is the great I am, the Lord of history. What do you make this morning of this staggering claim? It's common in our day and age for people to to like Jesus. He's still likable by some. He's likable as a great example. He's likable as a moral teacher. He claimed to be God. And that's the point a lot of people can struggle with. He claims to be your God, the one who created you and me. How do you respond to that? Well, in John 8.24, he said this to a crowd, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Our eternity is at stake based on who we know Jesus to be for us. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We, we need to see him. We need to believe in him like Thomas called him, my Lord and my God. Let me just plead with you this morning, if you've yet to believe in Jesus, don't die in your sins. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, Believe that he is the great I am, the Lord of history. Believe and have life in his name. That is why John wrote this. That is why it is, it is preserved for us today that we would believe and know him as the great I am. The officers and soldiers fell down, but they got back up. And they heard the claim 
and they just kept going with what they had planned. They asked him again the same question in the same way. He answered in the same way. And in our passage, we go from this staggering claim to seeing that Jesus is engaged in a substitutional mission. A substitutional mission. Look at verse 8 with me again. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Jesus' words are the words of a substitute. If you seek me, let these men go. I think we're fairly familiar with substitutes. We see this in sports. One player comes out of the game. Another player goes in for and takes that place of him or her in the game. If a player comes out of a game without somebody going in, they don't call it a substitution. We see this in cooking. You realize you don't have eggs and you need to substitute an ingredient. Well, if you just leave out the eggs, it's not called a substitution. But if you put something else in, it is. Jesus' mission was that of a substitute. John, the, the writer of this gospel, he goes out of his way to show that Jesus is a substitute. Now, if you're familiar with other gospel accounts at this point, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell about this same moment of Jesus in the garden, but John leaves out the detail that the other ones include. Like, for instance, Jesus praying in agony. That was a pretty big moment. His disciples were sleeping. John doesn't say a word about that. When Peter cuts off the ear of the servant, Jesus heals the servant's ear. Other uh, gospel accounts include that. That's pretty big. That's a miracle. John doesn't say a word about that. Instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John includes this substitutional mission of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now the cup that Jesus mentions here, it's not a literal cup. It's figurative language that is all over the Old Testament. The cup is often a picture of God's wrath having to be drunk by someone. So Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We see this in Ezekiel. We see this again in Job. Job 21.20 speaks of drinking God's wrath. It's all over the Old Testament. So why? Why is Jesus facing the prospect of having to drink from the cup of the wrath of God? 
What did he ever do to offend his father? He lived in perfect obedience. Every action, every thought, every word, every attitude, fully aligned in obedience to his father. It's because God is giving him our cup. This is our cup. This is a cup of sinners. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. We transgressed his holiness. You know, I just think about all the things in life that we try to keep and hoard that we write our name on and we're like, don't touch that, that's mine. No, you can't have from that, that's mine. How many times we say or an argument starts with, hey, that's mine. No one's fighting over this cup with Jesus. But he steps forward and he stops Peter's attempt at force and he says as our substitute, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Do we hear our Savior this morning? I had to do it to save everybody. If sinners like you and me were to be saved, he's got to take the cup. He's got to bear the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. And that's what makes this a substitutional mission. Even Caiaphas, the high priest, had prophesied that one man would die in place of the people for the people. That's a substitutional mission. One hymn writer put this mission this way. He says, this is a song you may be familiar with, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a savior. Jesus did not shrink back at this most crucial moment but stepped forward as God incarnate in human form in full agreement with his father. He received the cup of the wrath of God to appease God's wrath against our sin. He stepped forward as a willing substitute. You know, when I think about that opening story of Jay having secured the school and he has the blankets and he has the food and there's three of them who've gotten out of the storm and into safety. I am moved at that moment that he would go back out into the blizzard, out into the danger in order to bring others into safety. And that moves me because it's an echo of what Jesus does. It's an echo of him risking And going out and going after the lost, you and me. 
And on the heels of this bravery, Jesus and Jesus' bravery displayed here in John 18, the passage then lastly tells us of a sad denial. A sad denial. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. I don't know if you've experienced this when you read John, but there's always this other disciple, this other guy who outruns Peter and this this disciple whom Jesus loved. This other disciple is John. Not John the Baptist, but John the son of Zebedee. John the brother of James. John the one who is writing this gospel, uh, who wrote the letters of John, who wrote the book of Revelation. In this gospel account, his name is missing. He's not mentioned, and yet he was among Jesus' closest disciples. And so this is him. And some writers, some, some commentators think, you know, he's not mentioning himself because he wants to remain modest. Um, I think when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, I don't know how modest that is. But this is John. And as Jesus is standing trial before Annas defending the truth, Peter is outside giving denial after denial. And I want you to look at the form of these denials. Look at verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And then again in verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Peter's denial is two simple words in the Greek, uk eimi. And they are the opposite words of what Jesus used to identify himself in the garden. And this contrast seems to be intentional. Jesus twice said, I am. Peter twice said, I am not. This is the sad denial. Jesus had told Peter when they were in the upper room together that Peter would deny him. Peter said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What Jesus said would happen, happened. He denied that he was a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. He later denied that he was even with Jesus. And while Peter is outside denying Jesus, Jesus is inside giving testimony before Annas. Now, Annas and Caiaphas are both mentioned in this passage as being the high priest. And how that works out is Annas was the high priest, and the high priest would serve until he died, but the Romans had appointed Caiaphas to take his place. So in the Jews' eyes, 
Annas was still high priest, but for protocol, decisions had to be made by Caiaphas, which is why Jesus first goes to Annas, and then when Annas decides, he sends him to Caiaphas to carry out the judgment against Jesus. So Jesus answered Annas, look at verse 20 and 21. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. At his defense, Jesus invites Annas to ask any of those who heard him which is the irony with Peter's denial. Because Peter's being asked, and he's denying repeatedly that he is a disciple, a follower, or even knows Jesus. One writer describes the irony this way. He says, John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners And denies everything. If this sad denial was the last word about Peter, this would seem pretty hopeless. But it's not the last word. Jesus makes a staggering claim. He claims to be, I am, the Lord of history. Jesus has a substitutional Mission. He is willingly, voluntarily laying down his life in the place of sinners to save them. This denial is not a surprise. This denial is not a mountain for Jesus. Jesus knows the kind of people he's laying down his life to save. Even deniers, even those who fear man and who stumble. Fear what others think of us more than we we want to actually obey or honor the Lord. Peter thought he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. Peter thought he should be the one washing Jesus. Peter thought that if everyone else abandons and forsakes Jesus, he would remain faithful. And so the lesson on this eve of Jesus' crucifixion is a perfect lesson for us today. And I think very much in keeping with the prophetic word that we heard earlier in our service. We often think we're going to do so much for the Lord. We often think that we are going to impress Him and remain faithful to Him and not stumble in sin with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions, but he is the one who does it all for us. He washes all who trust in him. He remains faithful to us. There's this point in our relationship with the Lord where we realize we don't add anything to him. He adds everything to us. He doesn't need our bravado. He doesn't need our vows of all the things we're going to do for him or all the ways we're never going to grieve him. No, church, we fail him. 
And he knew that. And he still stepped forward willingly and said, I need to drink the cup. I have to do it. I have to do it to save everyone. And he did it willingly. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, in one sense, he didn't have to do it. But in another sense, compelled from within, in perfect agreement with his Father, the way to save everyone is through the cross. And he's known that, and he's been talking about that, and they've been pointing to him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all been building to this moment, and he has to do it to save everyone. And church... Praise God that he did it. Praise God that the great I am of history came as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God against our sin that we deserved so that we could not just, not, so we could avoid dying in our sins and be brought into everlasting life with him. If I can invite the worship team to return. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Oh, church, he was so rich. He's the I am. He's the Lord of history. He's divine, fully God, fully man, rich. Rich in righteousness, rich in holiness, rich in godliness, rich in obedience. Had everything he needed. Yet for your sakes, for my sake, for our sake, he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are cut to the heart by this display of Jesus' glory. We thank you. We thank you for his willingness. And, Lord, I just, I pray for us as a church. There are moments where we we think you just kind of put up with us or you're up to here with us based on our poor performances. Thank you. Thank you for making a way in Jesus. Thank you for willingly, voluntarily making a way in Jesus for us to be saved. Father, thank you for giving Jesus the cup. Jesus, thank you for taking the cup. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Lord, move us to love. Move us to receive the good news of the gospel yet again today. Like like a phone call from a far off land to receive good news. We receive this from you today in Jesus' name. Amen.